Welcome back to episode two of the Ball Might Lie podcast. On today's show, we are covering some running back news, NBA in-season tournament schedule release, NFL and NBA superstar trade rumors, two sports scandals, and another potential name change up in Washington, D.C. And then we will wrap up with projecting the top 15 quarterbacks for the 2023-24 NFL season. Let's get into it. So we got some breaking news out of the NFL in the NFC East that we have two running backs joining two different teams in, within the division. We have Dalvin Cook signing with the New York Jets, and Ezekiel Elliott will be signing with the Patriots for this upcoming season. Both are on one-year deals, and I think that these are good fits for both of these teams. Dalvin Cook is an elite running back still. He can catch passes out of the backfield. He can run between the tackles. He can bust out an 80-yard touchdown when he gets an opening. And then Zeke is like going to be more of a goal line back for the Patriots, third down, short yardage type of player. He's going to be a really good blitz pickup guy and pass protector. Um, I think obviously Cook is the better player, and the Patriots have a weaker roster, so some Patriots fans may be upset about not getting Dalvin Cook and signing Zeke instead. I don't think they should be too upset. They got him for less money. Um, Ramondre Stevenson is a bell cow back for the Patriots. I think that Ramondre did have some issues punching it into the goal line, into the end zone for six when they got there, had some fumble issues. It was really frustrating to watch, especially because Ramondre was on my fantasy team, left a lot of points on the board. I think Zeke's going to be able to finish those drives off and capitalize and make Bill Belichick happy in the red zone. Dalvin Cook is going to be almost a stopgap for Brees Hall coming back. Brees Hall is their rookie that is coming off of a major ACL tear. I think Dalvin Cook will be the bell cow running back for the first few weeks while Brees Hall works his way back into full playing conditioning. Um I think once that Brees Hall is getting more into his rhythm and stuff, I think it's going to be more of like a 60-40 backfield with 60% being Dalvin Cook, 40% Brees Hall. I know Jets fans might be like, what? Brees Hall is way better than Dalvin Cook when he was healthy last year. That might be true, but ACL recovery isn't always going to be like Adrian Peterson when he came back and ran for 2,000 yards. That's just not how it works. It takes some time. I think he's going to have to use this season as a recovery season. And then next year he will reclaim his bell cow status. And, I mean, that running back room is real stacked up in New York. They got Michael Carter, too, who's a really solid player out of North Carolina. Ezekiel Elliott. Sorry, not Zeke. Dalvin Cook and Brees Hall. I think that they have one of the better running back rooms in the league, and they are definitely Super Bowl contenders. And being able to run the ball definitely helps your offensive line's confidence and the game script. Speaking of the New York Jets, there has been some chatter on Instagram about David Bakhtiari potentially being a trade target for the Jets. A lot of people are saying that the Jets' biggest weakness going into this season that's going to be the problem that kills their Super Bowl dreams is their offensive line. You have Dwayne Brown, who's kind of hard for him to stay on the field lately. Mekhi Becton, it's always been hard for that guy to stay on the field. I don't even think that guy's played more than five games in the NFL. He's a huge talent, but it's kind of hard to predict. They got Elijah Vera Tucker in the middle. I think they drafted a rookie center this year. 
I don't know. It's just kind of a shaky, glued-together project, it feels like. And David Bakhtiari would be a huge add to this team. But I think that Jets fans are definitely overhyping this. What sparked this conversation was actually Aaron Rodgers himself. He posted a picture with him and Dalvin Cook during training camp, and he tagged David Bakhtiari and put his tag camouflaged on his ass, making it the same color as the pants, and it was really small, so it was kind of hard to tell. So people were thinking, oh, my God, he's tagging David in our in training camp pictures. Maybe David's going to be at our training camp soon enough. I just don't think that to be the case. I don't even think they have enough money after the Aaron Rodgers pay cut, especially after they signed Dalvin Cook. I think that David Bakhtiari and Aaron Rodgers just have that type of relationship where they like to fuck with each other. And I think Aaron Rodgers was just ultimately fucking with Bach in this. I also think that if the Jets were to trade for a tackle, would David Bakhtiari even be the type of guy they wanted? I mean, their issue with their tackles right now is health, and David Bakhtiari hasn't exactly been the most healthy guy in the past couple years. He's had real issues with his knee stability after his big injury that he had, and I think that he would prefer to not play in the New York Jets stadium every single home game. I know that he is a big proponent for the NFL grass versus turf being on the grass side, saying how much turf sucks for his knee. But that stadium up in New Jersey has some of the worst grass along with Soldier Field in the entire league. So I don't even think that David Bakhtiari would be the tackle that Jets should go after. Also, looking at it from the Green Bay side, why in the hell would they trade them, or why would they trade David Bakhtiari to the Jets? The best way for a young developing quarterback like Jordan Love is to have solid protection and be able to look down the field and not feel like his blind side's getting scorched the whole time and having fire and always wanting to get out of the pocket to avoid danger. So I think that if they were to trade David Bakhtiari, it wouldn't be the Jets because they don't want to give the Jets more assets from their team. They lost Alan Lazard. They lost Randall Cobb and Aaron Rodgers to the Jets. I don't think that they want to give up one of their best cornerstones to the Jets again and then potentially hurt Jordan Love's development. Another trade rumor coming out of the sports world that I think has a lot more validity is James Harden requesting a trade. And then the team came out a little bit later and said that they weren't trading James Harden, leading to James Harden freaking out at one of his camps, saying that the GM of the 76ers, Daryl Morey, is a liar and that he will never be associated with an organization with Daryl Morey ever again. I think this is interesting because Harden and Maury's relationship goes way back to Houston when Maury acquired Harden, thinking that he could be an MVP-type player, which Harden proved him right. Maury's been one of the biggest proponents to James Harden and always advocating for him. It's hard to see, see what happened in this relationship. The only thing that I think is weird is that James Harden was really wanting Doc Rivers to be fired after the season. And then if you want your coach to be fired and then you want traded afterwards, why would the team even listen to you? I don't know. It's just a really weird situation going on there. I don't know if he is going to get traded. I don't know if he's going to sit out if he doesn't get traded. It's really hard to say. And I was looking at all the teams trying to figure out where he would be traded to. I know a lot of people were saying the Clippers as an early rumor. I could see that, and they make it onto the four teams that I have as a James Harden 
potential landing spot. So number four is the Los Angeles Clippers forming a big three with Paul George and Kawhi Leonard. I don't really know the salary cap situations with either of these teams. I don't know if they would need any salary dumps. I don't like this move for the Clippers. I think you have two stars already that are kind of in and out with injuries a lot. Adding a third guy that is kind of the same way and it isn't the best defender might hurt your depth in the long run and your championship aspirations. I think that they built around Kawhi and Paul George. I think that they just need to stay healthy and gain chemistry with their role or the role players and I think that Clippers will be a lot better this coming season. I think James Harden, especially with like Russell Westbrook, a lot of ball dominant players, I just don't see the fit in my eyes and I think that it actually would hurt them in the long run. The next spot I have is the Toronto Raptors. The Raptors just lost one of their big-time scorers in Fred Van Vliet, and Harden could fill that role. It's hard to say if James Harden would want to play in Toronto, though. It is kind of isolated from the rest of the world, but one thing we know about James Harden is how much that dude loves to party and throw down in the clubs. Toronto has one of the best club scenes in the entire world, so maybe he would give it a thought. But in my opinion, I think that he wouldn't want to go to Toronto. I think he is kind of searching for a ring. And I don't think Toronto has the pieces, even with James Harden, to contend for a championship this coming year. The next spot I have is a little bit of a sleeper, in my opinion. I haven't heard it being thrown at it all. And that is actually the Milwaukee Bucks. I think that the Bucks would probably have to give up Chris Middleton in this trade situation. But Chris Middleton's role on this team is just kind of be a backup scorer to Giannis and sometimes Drew Holiday and kind of be that closer down the stretch that if you need a tough created bucket without any plays or sets, you just need a guy to isolate and maybe get you a tough mid-range bucket that they've looked to Chris Middleton in a lot of those times. I think that Chris might have lost his touch in those moments after winning the finals. I think he's a good player, but I think as far as closing out games – I think James Harden could give the Bucks a bigger edge going into next year and making them more of a dangerous championship contender. I think the only drawbacks to this trade and some and reasons that it may not happen would be that Milwaukee doesn't view James Harden as a culture fit in their locker room or the 76ers not willing to trade James Harden within the conference. They might want to send them out west so they don't have to compete with them on another contending team in the Eastern Conference. And then the, no- the number one team I have for acquiring James Harden is also one I haven't really heard talked about a lot, and that would be the Minnesota Timberwolves. Minnesota did lose D'Angelo Russell and their leading point guard at the trade deadline last year to Los Angeles. I mean, it's hard to see how D'Angelo Russell is. Some nights he's like a 25-point-per-score game. Some nights he goes out there and gives you four. I think James Harden would be a lot more consistent of a point guard for Minnesota, and he doesn't have to be your top scoring option with Anthony Edwards and Carl Anthony Towns there, so you don't have to rely on him as much as you would on a team like Toronto. I don't know if James Harden, kind of like the Toronto situation, would want to play in Minnesota, but I also think that this team, besides Milwaukee, would be his best bet at winning a championship in the Western Conference. I think a big four, really, of Rudy Gobert, James Harden, 
Anthony Edwards and Carl Anthony Towns is a nice enough mix of offense and defense. If they get good role players and have enough chemistry, I think that they could be a serious threat for the championship this coming season. Staying on the topic of the NBA, the NBA just released their NBA in-season tournament schedules for the first games. And there's a lot of buzz around this NBA in-season tournament. And I think the main goal behind this tournament is to get star players to play and take the regular season more seriously. And in my opinion, I don't think this is going to work at all. The only real rewards you get for an NBA in-season tournament is more money, which yes, everybody loves. But these NBA guys, they're making 35, 40, sometimes up to 50 million dollars per year. And 1 million dollars to risk their health is probably not worth it to them in most in most cases. I think that these role players and mid roster G League two-way type players are going to be playing their asses off though and we'll see some cool buckets out of these guys but as far as making the star players play more I don't think this is the route that the NBA is going to find successful I think that these load managing teams and stars are either up there in age dealing with previous injuries and just trying to extend their NBA career as long as possible and if it really boils down to it it doesn't really matter until the playoffs anyways. A lot of these sports debate shows and podcasts, when they're talking about greatness of a player and their legacy, we're not saying, oh man, Bradley Beal last season scored 35 points a game when it was a scoring title. No one's talking about how great Bradley Beal is and his scoring title. And that just goes to show that everything's geared towards championships and playoff performance in today's age. And in my opinion, the NBA already shot themselves in the foot when it came to this load management stuff, it was kind of already becoming a thing. Popovich kind of started it with Tim Duncan and them. Once they already clinched, they kind of gave those guys rest nights and let them heal up and get ready for the playoffs. But once the NBA introduced the play-in tournament during the COVID season, it just kind of made the NBA regular season a joke. Now there's more playoff teams than not. And if you're a fringe team on the edge, just like the Heat did last year, they kind of just waited for their guys to get healthy until the playoffs started because they could say, oh, we're just going to win a, two of these playoff games and get in to the playoffs. And then from there, we're a more healthy team. We're more ready to contend for a championship. And look, it worked. The Heat made the finals last season. When you have more teams making the playoffs than not, it's kind of hard to take a regular season seriously when you have 82 games, you're flying all over the country, having games in back-to-back -back nights, and the pace of play is the highest it's been since the 1960s. These guys need to take care of their bodies. They want to play in the NBA as long as they can and get as much money as they can. There's no reason for them to play in these games when they're having minor injuries. And guess what? They just have to win two games at the end of the year if they're a 10 seed to make the playoffs. It's ridiculous. I just don't think that an in-season tournament is going to help the NBA get these stars play star players playing. I think if they want more star players to play, they need to get rid of this play-in stuff, which I do think the play-in games are fun and exciting, but it's just really not helping their case in this direction that they're trying to go, in my opinion. And now we got to cover some stuff that is not quite as fun as far as sports go. We had two big-time scandals come out this past week. And these are two of the weirder scandals that I ever remember. Usually it's just like, oh, this guy had racist tweets, this owner's racist, stuff like that. Or maybe there's someone that 
is stealing. There's a chief super fan on the run that's been robbing banks. That one's pretty crazy too. But this one is very weird. It's coming from Michael Orr and the Blindside movie. I don't know if any of you guys have seen Blindside. It came out in like 2009 and it's about Michael Orr, who the story's based around, is a kid that is homeless and he's got big time football potential, but he struggles in school. And he eventually makes it to Ole Miss, a D1 offer, gets to go to college for free. And this family brings him in and adopts him and just gives him a better life. Well, Michael Orr is coming out and I think he's suing the family that adopted him, quote unquote, because he was being stolen from from them. So what Michael Orr is claiming is that they didn't actually adopt him at all. And that they just made him sign over his rights to be like marketed and stuff. So basically what happened was that Michael Orr gave away his rights to be be like, I don't know, it's basically like NIL almost, like name image likeness. So he was casted in this movie, or not casted, but he was portrayed in this movie. It made tons of money. He got a flat rate, but they didn't get any like royalties or any other stuff like that. Well, he's saying now that, the family has been making royalties off of his name and they were able to cut him out because of this document that he signed, which they portrayed as kind of like an adoption type of thing that he needed to sign to be like a legal part of their family. I think if Michael Orr is telling the truth that that is absolutely ridiculous. And this, this family should pay over everything that they earned from that movie, even though that their name image likeness was used too. they robbed from someone that, they pretended to care for and that's just insane to me i know that michael orr originally when this movie came out didn't like how he was portrayed he said that he could read and write he wasn't a complete idiot he said he probably didn't have the best grades in the world but he was at least semi-successful and it wasn't a huge problem as far as him getting playing time and going to college and also that he didn't like how he seemed like he was a scrub in the movie but he was already an all-american player before the family took him in so if the family took him in after him already being a Hall of Fame or not Hall of Fame but All American player, and then stealing from him, I think that they probably never even cared for him for the start, and they just saw him as a cash cow, which is absolutely insane, and they should be condemned if that is true at all. Just ridiculous in my opinion. And for the next scandal, we're going to be talking about a baseball player. Wander Franco for the uh, Tampa Bay Rays. He's their up-and-coming shortstop, one of the brightest young players in the league. And a Facebook post was posted with a girl claiming that he was in a romantic relationship with her, and she was just 14 years old. Which, there has been, like, one or two other underage, like, dating scandals in the MLB. Um, this one, the most recent one, it's just weird. If you are a big-time sports athlete and you can get any chick that you lay your eyes on at a club or whatever and you choose to be with a 14-year-old, ah, man, that's just crazy to me. You're sick in the head. Something's wrong with you, and you should be locked up forever. You should never play in the MLB again if this is true. However, if this lady's lying for attention which I hope she's, I mean, I don't even know which way to hope. This is just a weird situation. It's gross. If Wander's guilty, lock him up, throw away the key, say goodbye to baseball and that big-time contract you just signed. If the chick's lying, lock her up forever, throw away the keys, make her pay damages and whatever she's got to Wander. 
either way, I just hope justice is served and this situation gets ironed out. Not great for the Rays, especially after just losing one of their ace pitchers. This kills almost all their momentum going to the playoffs, I feel like, and it's just damaging to their team. I mean, this is just ridiculous. I mean, a multimillionaire going for a 14-year-old. And, like, it's not even like it's, like, a 17-year-old that's, like, almost 18. It's, like, a 14-year-old. That is just disgusting, man. I can't believe it. And then rolling back into the NFL before we talk about our 15 top QBs going into next year, we're going to talk about the Washington Commanders. Their team obviously just got bought by Josh Harris, who's a part owner of the Philadelphia 76ers. And he had some pretty interesting remarks in his press conference. I don't know if anyone knows, but he actually grew up in the area and was a Redskins fan growing up. So buying the, your favorite team kind of seems like a dream. In the press conference, though, it kind of makes it seem like they are going to change their name after this year, and they hate the Commanders. And Josh Harris has been talking an awful amount of, like, history and stuff like that. And there's been some petitions from Native American groups saying that they want the Redskins' name to come back. I think that if they have the Native Americans' side on this and everyone agrees with it, that if ownership and those communities want the name to come back, there's no reason that it shouldn't. I think that it's a very historic team, obviously. It's been around forever. Um, I don't think that Commanders was taken too lightly, lightly, or not a lot of people liked it, I should say. I did like the Washington football team a lot more, kind of ironically, but it's kind of cool at the same time. I was actually mad when the Cleveland Indians went with the Guardians instead of the Cleveland Baseball Club. I don't know. It's kind of just funny that you have a team that's with that generic of a name. It was almost like a soccer team name, it feels like. But, yeah, Commanders is just not it. I think that they're going to change the team name. I don't know if it's going to be back to the Redskins, but with basically a public outcry from that community and an owner that loves that team since he was a kid, it makes sense to me. And honestly, I think that the only reason that the Redskins had to change their name was because of Daniel Snyder being such a terrible owner to start with. I think if the Redskins had a strong, confident owner that wasn't a sleazy guy and like having all these side scandals besides the team name, that it would have never happened. I think that Daniel Snyder used the team name change to get away from all these other scandals that were going on and that he didn't actually care about the team name. He just wanted the heat off of his back for all this other crap that he was doing. I think that we would still have the Washington Redskins if we had a strong owner like Jerry Jones or Jim Irsay in that position. There was no way they would let up their team name, history, and tradition just like that. But if they decide to go to a different name, completely new name, I'm sure it will probably be better than Commanders. So for our meat and potatoes of today's show, we are going to be projecting the top 15 quarterbacks for the 2023-24 season. And I think it's important to say how I'm projecting these, um, just because I, you might hear some of these names and say, uh, what the fuck are you talking about? You're an idiot. Why is this guy on the list? Why isn't this guy on the list? Um, some of you still may feel that way anyways, but this is how I will be projecting for this list. I will be projecting based off of where I think the narrative and conversation will be after this coming season, not including playoffs or anything like that. And just based off of like more of eye test more, rather than like stats and stuff like that. 
So for our honorable mentions, I have Jared Goff, Tua Tungavailoa, Derek Carr, and Jordan Love. These guys just missed the list. I couldn't see myself putting these guys over the guys I have on the list. I think Jared Goff is good. He's a bit streaky. I think that with the rotating weapons they've had and Jamison Williams' suspension slash injury, that he's probably going to have about the same type of year as he had last year. And I think he was just outside of the top 15 last year or right at 15. I don't know. I think that the run game will be a little bit more of a factor this year for the Lions and the pass game will be a little bit less of. And also, I think that Jared Goff's ceiling probably isn't quite as high as some of the guys I have on on this list, and his room for growth isn't quite there compared to the other guys. Also, for Tua, I think Tua is the best out of the four to be on this list next year. I think his physical stuff and his injury history, it's just hard to predict if he's going to play all of the 17 games I think he will I hope he does at least Um, I think if he does play all 17 games and has like his full arsenal of weapons that he very well could be above some of these bottom guys on this list Um, I think Tua's probably got a loaded deck though he's got some of the best skill positions on the team if their line can hold strong they'll be definitely one of the best offenses and Tua definitely would earn his way onto this list as far as Derek Carr goes it's just hard to predict because he is on a new team. I think he's on a bit better of a team for him as far as fit-wise, coach, and roster. Um, I think that Derek Carr just kind of makes too many mistakes, though, for me to put him on this list. And, yeah, I just, as far as the four the on the honorable mentions, he's probably the lowest one. And Jordan Love. I think that Jordan Love is good. I think that we know nothing about Jordan Love as far as a regular season game, though. We've only seen him in one game last year, and in the preseason, he does look good. But it's just hard for me to put him at 15 or above just because we haven't seen him at all. I think if he is what I think he is, I think he will be on the list. So, starting off this list at number 15, I have Kenny Pickett for the Pittsburgh Steelers. As soon as Pittsburgh drafted Kenny Pickett, I said, oh shit, here we go. This is the next guy. They had a guy, hometown kid, played at Pitt. They got him in the first round, uncontested, just kind of fell in their lap. I was like, this is going to be their guy for the next 10 years. Um, That's just the way it goes with Pittsburgh, it feels like. Um, Kenny Pickett probably isn't the most physically imposing quarterback or has the best physical tools or biggest arm of any quarterback. But at the end of last season, we saw his clutchness, his ability to tear up the field, pick you apart, find out what coverage you're in. I think that the line for the Steelers is the most improved part of their team. And Kenny Pickett faced a lot of pressure last year. Also, he kind of was bouncing in and out with Mitch Trubisky. He didn't start the year. Then he started a few games. Then he got a concussion. Then he was out of game. Then he had another concussion. He was just kind of in and out, kind of hard to build chemistry with his guys. He didn't have a training camp with the ones, had to build chemistry on the fly with those guys. I think a full season as a starter, he's going to be majorly improved. They're going to have a lot better of an offense than what a lot of people think. I think that their main drawback is just developing those young linemen still. I think it will take them a few games to gel. Also, Matt Canada 
can he, this guy get the ball down the field? It feels like his offense is very horizontal, and they don't have a lot of deep shots and put pressure on the defense. I think that Kenny Pickett and Canada will resolve some stuff in the playbook over this offseason, and that it will be more of a dangerous threat for big plays and such like stuff like that. So, 15 is Kenny Pickett. At 14, I have Kirk Cousins. I think that Kirk Cousins, if I would have made this list for this year, would have been much higher around that 10-9 range. I think Kirk Cousins is a super underrated quarterback. People like to hate on him, say that, oh, on those Monday night games or those playoff games, he shrinks in the moment. I don't, I don't know. I think that that really doesn't have as much to do with it as a lot of people think. Quarterback is a win is a or winning is a quarterback stat in most people's eyes. I don't find it that way. They had a terrible defense last year, one of the worst of all time. I think Kirk just gets unlucky sometimes in those big games, which is kind of the way it goes sometimes. But Kirk Cousins, one of the best processors, super accurate. He's got Justin Jefferson. We'll see how KJ Osborne comes along and if Jordan Addison can do anything this year in his rookie campaign. I think that the biggest problem with the Vikings is that they're not going to be nearly as competitive or lucky in those one-score games. Also, I think that their line is probably one of the worst in the league, and Kirk Cousins isn't the type of quarterback that's going to succeed or be able to ignore a bad offensive line. Um, Everyone saw the Netflix documentary of Kirk Cousins. They love his personality. What isn't there to love? He's just kind of that goofy, dorky dad that just happens to be an NFL quarterback. Also, Kirk Cousins is in a contract year, and the Vikings haven't given him an extension, and it doesn't seem like they will unless if he proves something. I don't think that he will get an extension from the Vikings even if he does prove something and plays his ass off. I don't know. I think he will be rehoming next year. And 14, just kind of the way their success will be, is about the highest I could have put Kirk Cousins. At number 13, we have Mac Jones for the New England Patriots. I think that Mac Jones is one of the more overhated quarterbacks to go along with Kirk Cousins. I think Mac Jones is probably a top five smartest quarterback in the league. And that says a lot considering how young of a player he is. I think that Mac Jones has kind of been shorted as far as weapons goes. Everyone says, oh, Bill Belichick went out and spent so much money on the first day of free agency to get Mac Jones all of these weapons. But nobody ever talks about the weapons he had. They just talked about how much money was spent on them. They had a tight end. I don't even, he was on the Titans. He's on the Falcons now. He's not even on the team. I can't even remember his name. That's how good he was. They got Hunter Henry, who's solid. He's not a world beater or anything, but he's a good player. And then they got, like, Kendrick Bourne from the 49ers. Like, these guys aren't super dangerous players. This year they got Juju Smith-Schuster. They got some rookies in training camp that are popping. That Boutte guy I've heard a lot of great things about. Also, Mac Jones was playing with a defensive coordinator calling plays in his ear. Super frustrating Probably one of the worst coaching decisions of all time by Bill Belichick there. Just kind of a weird thing coming from the GOAT of coaching to make that call. I don't know. I just think that the Patriots are always a dangerous team, especially on the defensive end. I think Bill O'Brien being added to the team. I think a solid, consistent receiver like Juju. And then some up-and-coming rookies and young guys 
that he can build some chemistry with and see some development with, especially with that slot position that the Patriots always seem to have. Guys like Julian Edelman, Wes Welker, stuff like that. I think if they get one of those types of guys in these rookies, even that Malik Cunningham quarterback wide receiver, he's kind of twitchy. I think he might be able to make some noise on the Patriots roster as far as big plays and receiving and gadget plays go. I think the offense will be a lot more dynamic for the Patriots this year, and Mac Jones is going to get a lot more love than he has the past couple years. So, number 12 will be Geno Smith for the Seahawks. Geno Smith definitely has had one of the weirdest playing trajectories of all time. He was on the New York Jets, a place where quarterbacks thrive. Just kidding. He got punched in the face, broken jaw in training camp. The media in New York hates on the guy. He was supposed to be their savior. He definitely wasn't. He leaves New York for, oh yeah, New York, the Giants this time. Doesn't really do much there. Then gets shipped off all the way to the West Coast in Seattle to be Russell Wilson's backup is somehow like the greatest coin flip predictor of all time. He's like 14-0 and 0 when it comes to coin flips for beginning a game and overtime. He's an absolute wizard when it comes to those. He would be worth the signing, honestly, as like a backup quarterback before he had this breakout year with the Seahawks just for that purpose is getting those overtime balls so you can receive and get a touchdown and get, get the hell out of the stadium. You win. But – once Geno Smith won the training camp battle with Drew Locke, everyone kind of said, or I don't think anyone really expected that. I think they thought that, oh, they traded for Drew Locke. Drew Locke's a young player. He's got potential. Drew Locke's going to get the nod over Geno Smith because people weren't expecting the Seahawks to be any sort of good. I thought they, they were going to be in contention for the first overall pick that year. Um, well, we know what happens. Gino wins the training camp battle. Gino marches down to Broncos and beats Russell Wilson in week one. He has a way better season than Russell Wilson, who is not on this list. I will spoil that for all of you Russell Wilson and Bronco fans. Um, he looks really good. He's got a pretty deep ball, and he's got one of the best receiving cores in the league with Jackson Smith and Jigba, the rookie, as a new addition. Tyler Lockett, Mr. Consistency and the physical freak of DK Metcalf. Another knock about the Seahawks roster that I think might lend Geno to fall off this list is their offensive line. I think that their two tackles that they got in the draft last year have good potential, and I think that they could be a really good line maybe even this year. But we have to see still. I think they'll be better than they were last year. I think Geno Smith is going to be right around that 12 spot. The only reason I can't put him higher, frankly, is just because we've got a lot better younger quarterbacks in this league that are a bit more exciting than Geno Smith. I think Geno Smith is one of the cooler stories. I think that, I mean, if Alex Smith didn't come back at all, he would have won comeback player of the year. I don't think he's going to win it this Obviously, he's not going to win it this year. He got a big extension. But another thing to think about this, though, is Geno isn't solid for his job. I think that if Anthony Richardson would have been available to them at five, I think that they would have picked him over that Devin Witherspoon quarterback, cornerback, sorry. I think that the Seahawks aren't completely sold on Geno for a long-term answer, but I think as far as this year goes, 
that the Seahawks will be contenders in the NFC, and Geno Smith makes his way to this list at number 12. At number 11, I have Danny Dimes, Daniel Jones. I think Daniel Jones, as far as talent and ability-wise, is the most slept-on quarterback in the NFL. He's tall, he's strong, he's pretty smart, and he's got undervalued legs for sure. I think Danny Daniel Jones is probably in one of the worst situations as far as last year went. The line was the most improved part of their team, which was nice seeing that he actually had some time to throw and that Saquon Barkley could run the ball a couple yards past the line of scrimmage without getting absolutely pummeled. So I think that the improvement of the line will go even a step further this year for the Giants. I think they've added some weapons in Darren Waller at tight end and then some outside guys that are still pretty unproven but can be solid with more time. Jalen Hyatt to take the top off. You got Sterling Shepard. You got a bunch of other guys that are kind of no names but could be decent. Brian Dable is an excellent coach. Their offense will be good. And also they are in the NFC. So outside of their own division, there isn't a whole lot of competition, honestly. I think they will be one of the wild card teams. I think Daniel Jones will have a better year than he had last year, which got him a four-year extension. I think that's another thing that's not talked about enough about Daniel Jones is he had a complete regime change, GM and head coach, from the ones that drafted him, and they decided that they were going to pay him. I think that if Daniel Jones was a bum, I think that that new regime was looking for any opportunity to get him the hell out of New York and to get a guy that they drafted. But that wasn't the case. Daniel Jones put the team on his back last year with Saquon Barkley, led them to a playoff victory over the Minnesota Vikings, and he got paid. He's going to be the long-term starter for New York, and I think that he's just missing out on that top 10 mark, but I think he will become a top 10 QB in the years to come. So, Daniel Jones at 11 for sure. At number 10, I have his division rival in Dak Prescott. I think that, honestly, these two guys could be flipped at the end of the year. I just think that Dak Prescott has a lot better of a setup as far as weapons go. I think Daniel Jones has a coaching advantage. I think that Dayball is a little bit more modern and a little bit more explosive, or a little bit more of an explosive offense than Mike McCarthy's. But I think that Dak Prescott easily has better weapons. They acquired Brandon Cooks in the offseason. They have C.D. Lamb, one of the brightest stars in the league. They have a couple questions at tight end, in my opinion. I don't know how solid that will be after the loss of Dalton Schultz. I honestly think that the biggest downgrade of the Cowboys is their offensive coordinator position. I think that Kellen Moore was a scapegoat for their offensive struggles and Dak Prescott's interceptions, which a fair amount of them were drops. I think if Dak can cut down on the turnovers... I think if he can execute Mike McCarthy's offense, I think that 10 is a good spot for him. I think if these interceptions continue, though, and it tends to be a trend, I think that he will be probably even below Geno Smith and maybe even Mac Jones at the end of this year. As far as physicality and arm talent goes, I think that Daniel Jones and Dak Prescott are pretty similar. I think that Daniel Jones has better legs. I think Dak is just probably a little bit more accurate. They probably have about the same amount of arm strength. But Dak's Prescott, Dak Prescott's receivers 
give him the edge over Daniel Jones. So, Dak Prescott at number 10. Hopefully, it's about there. I could see it being lower. I don't think I could see it much higher, though. At number 9, we have Aaron Rodgers, New York's new golden boy. So, Aaron Rodgers is at 9, which may seem a little bit low. But with the aging quarterback, those questions on the offensive line that we talked about earlier could be a problem. It's nice that he has the same offensive coordinator that he had all those years in Green Bay. So he already knows the playbook more than a lot of the guys that were currently rostered on the Jets. I think that the Jets receiving room is a little bit overrated, though. I think that their line is shaky, especially for an aging quarterback that might get injured any day now. Aaron Rodgers, for a 40-year-old, damn near, is still really mobile and can escape really well. And he's got a quick release, and he makes quick decisions. I think that's what he's got going for him. Even if he is highly pressured, though, I don't know if the receiver separation is going to be where Aaron Rodgers wants it at. I think outside of Garrett Wilson, guys like Miko Hardman, Al Lazard, C.J. Uzama, I think it's kind of hard for them to be a well-rounded offense. Hopefully, Brees Hall comes back and Dalvin Cook can do what he did on the Vikings to give them a consistent running game so Aaron Rodgers can run that deadly play fake that he has in a lot of play-action plays. I think Aaron Rodgers is kind of starting his decline, though. Um, I still think he'll be an awesome quarterback. Top 10 in this league that we have right now with all this quarterback talent is nothing to sneeze at, especially as the old guy in the room. So we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll get back with the top eight quarterbacks for the 2023-24 NFL season. Welcome back to Ball Might Lie, and we're going over our top 15 quarterbacks for the 2023-24 season. We left off at number nine with Aaron Rodgers, and we're going to pick right back up with number eight, for this year and that will be Deshaun Watson. I know a lot of people don't like this guy, me included. One, he's a division rival as being a Ravens fan. I hate the Browns. I hate Deshaun Watson, especially with the allegations that he's had and settlements he's had to make, but that doesn't mean he isn't a good quarterback. I know last year was looking awfully rough for him. Um, who else would be able to do their job right away after missing damn near two years of playing. I just don't think that he's going to stay that rusty. I think he's had a full off season to work with his team. He's going to be the starter from week one. He's one of the more talented guys physically as far as NFL quarterbacks go. He was awesome as a Texan. Uh, I don't think that Deshaun Watson being this high will mean that the Browns are an automatic playoff bid. I think that the AFC is super tough. I could see Deshaun Watson still being at eight on this list, even if the Browns aren't a playoff team. I think what helps Deshaun Watson is that the Cleveland offensive line is one of the best in the league. They have pretty solid weapons, and Joku's an athletic freak tight end. I think that Amari Cooper is definitely one of the better route runners in the league, creates a lot of separation can make big plays for a team. They got one of the best running backs in the league with Nick Chubb. Their run game is going to be a problem. Deshaun Watson's going to have play action. Four days. Their 
secondary receivers are so-so, in my opinion. Donovan Peoples-Jones is one of those guys that just always is pretty solid, but doesn't have a big name or gets very much credit or recognition. And then Elijah Moore has kind of always been a question mark his entire career. We'll see if he fits into the Kevin Stefanski offense any better than he did in New York. I think Deshaun Watson will get a little bit better. I think that his potential is even higher than this, honestly. I think his potential is definitely lower than this. I could see him not even being on this list. I think people gave him a pass last year for his bad play, which I kind of did too. But I think that this year, if he doesn't play great starting from week one, I think people are start going to start getting loud and questioning whether that $230 million fully guaranteed contract is end up going to be end up worth it. It also doesn't help Deshaun Watson's case that the rookie quarterback that they drafted Dorian Thompson Robinson out of UCLA has been balling his ass off in the preseason. I think that if Deshaun Watson starts playing bad, he's throwing bad picks like last year, missing wide open guys. I think that people are going to be calling for this guy. Browns fans have been waiting forever for their quarterback. They don't want to be wasting money on this guy. If they have a rookie that's been balling and Deshaun looks how he has, I think that this guy's not going to get very much forgiveness. So, Deshaun Watson at 8, we'll see how that goes. Probably one of the biggest question marks on this entire list. At number 7 is Jalen Hurts. I know a lot of people really like Jalen Hurts. I saw him as high as 2 on people's lists after last year. I still think Jalen Hurts has a bit to prove. He definitely jumped from like in the 20s last year to the top 10 this year. 7's an awesome spot. He's an awesome player. He's got mobility. He's got really strong arm. He's improved his accuracy by a ton. He throws a pretty like a pretty pretty ball if that makes sense. Like his balls coming out of his hands look pretty good. Pause. But the only thing that is kind of going against Jalen Hurts as far as narrative wise goes is the team that he plays on, which is kind of a weird thing how that works. Like when you're on a crappy team and you're losing all the time, you get knocked, and then if you're on a good team that does everything you kind of get knocked for it too um I think that that's kind of what hurts Jalen Hurts is that they have such a great roster one of the best rosters in football he's got great receivers he's got a good tight end he's got one of the best offensive lines in the league he's got a great running game but I don't think that that really matters I think that Jalen Hurts is still a great quarterback I think that Even if he had not a super team and had like a decent team, I think that they would still be a winning contending team. But I think if that he was on like a bummier team, that he wouldn't be able to quite put everything on his shoulders like some of these guys were about to get into. So Jalen Hurts at seven, an awesome player, honestly becoming a polarizing player in the media. I think the Eagles are definitely going to be a Super Bowl contender and they will be at the end of the year a tough out especially with Hertz at the quarterback position. So next up we have number six in Trevor Lawrence. I think people really overrated Trevor Lawrence at the end of last year just because he had a few awesome games at the end of the regular season. And then he had that huge comeback over the Chargers in the playoffs. Like I said, winning isn't a quarterback stat, but in the media it is. I think that the Jaguars were a bit overrated at the end of last year. I mean, they barely beat Joshua Dobbs and the Titans to get into the playoffs. But that being said, I still think Trevor Lawrence did look really, really good. 
and I think that he's going to be potentially cracking top five next year. I got him at six. That's not bad. That's not shitting on him. I feel like everyone expects if third a guy's not in the top three that you're kind of shitting on him, and that's just not the case. Not every quarterback can be in the top three, top two, top one even, and there's so much quarterback talent in this league. I feel like it's the most talented the NFL has ever been at the quarterback position. So number six is definitely not a bad spot for Trevor Lawrence. They did pick up Calvin Ridley last year in the trade, but we'll see how their chemistry and stuff goes. I think that the Jaguars have awesome weapons, an awesome run game. They have a pretty solid coach. The only problem with them is their offensive line now. They got rid of a guy that he went to over to the Chiefs, one of their tackles, and then their starting left tackle got suspended for like, I think it's six games, the same type of suspension that DeAndre Hopkins got last year. So six games without their top tackle. I think their other tackles are rookie even. So we'll see how that line holds up. Trevor Lawrence is pretty mobile. Not one of the mo- like top-end mobile guys in the league, but mobile enough to maybe overcome some bad line play. I think their running backs will also take some pressure off of them with ETN and Tanks Bigsby. And they have receivers like Ridley and Christian Kirk that can get a lot of separation, which will take the pressure off of Lawrence. So Trevor Lawrence at six. So we are cracking into the top five now. And at this moment, I think the top five is where you can draw the line in the sand saying if this quarterback was on a shit roster that they could just backpack the whole team to lots of wins and even playoff wins. I think that five is the line in the sand right now. I'm not saying that that's going to be the line in the sand forever. I think that maybe by the end of this year, the line could be drawn all the way down to like nine even. I think that there could be nine quarterbacks where you could say, Man, if this guy was on a terrible team, they, if you put him on it, they're still a contender for the playoffs. But as of right now, I have it at five. And that will bring us to our number five quarterback in Josh Allen. I think Josh Allen is a really hard guy to predict for this upcoming year. His division got way tougher. The Dolphins are a real threat. So are the Jets. I think the Patriots are a tough out still. And it feels like Josh Allen... As far as weapons go, especially in the run game, is at a disadvantage compared to these other guys. They also lost their defensive coach, so they may they may have struggles getting into the playoffs this year. And it's kind of hard to say, oh man, you're a top five quarterback when you miss the playoffs. But I think Josh and Josh Allen is a tremendous talent. Obviously, one of the strongest arms we've ever seen in the league. He can run it himself. He's been their leading rusher the past couple years. I think they're going to have to dial that back, and they're going to have to bank on guys like James Cook quite a bit more. Damian Harris, Damian Harris, hopefully he can be a contributor. And also, I think that their weapons are a question mark this year. It's kind of hard to believe the Bills have been such an explosive team because of Josh Allen, I might add. But as far as weapons go, there's been chatter about Stephon Diggs all offseason, how much he really wants to be there. He's had that type of issue in the past with the Vikings forcing his way, which is why he's on the Bills to this day. Also, guys like Gabe Davis has kind of been getting some hate lately. He doesn't get the greatest amount of separation. He's got kind of a streaky receiver. He'll have one game with like two touchdowns and 100 yards, and then he won't show up for the next couple weeks. Kind of just a weird guy to evaluate. Dawson Knox has kind of fallen off since Dayball left. I know he's had some tough situations with his brother and stuff off the field. I'm hoping that he can bounce back and have an awesome season. 
And then they have a rookie that's probably going to start, in my opinion, with Dalton Kincaid. I think Kincaid's going to be more of like a slot receiver. They had Cole Beasley a couple years ago on the Bills. I think that Dalton Kincaid will kind of play that type of role, but except just be like five inches taller and like 70 pounds heavier. But hopefully that rookie can pan out for them. I got Josh Allen at five, an amazing talent, can backpack any sort of roster to a playoff berth. At number four, we have Joe Burrow for the Cincinnati Bengals. As far as these top five go, I think Joe Burrow is probably the least impressive as far as physicality goes. He's still pretty elusive in the pocket, and when I say pretty, I mean super elusive in the pocket. He can scramble a bit. He can run a bit. I feel like him and Trevor Lawrence kind of have the same athletic ability. I think Lawrence might be a bit more athletic, but Joe Burrow has a lot more experience, anticipation, and he's got better weapons. He's got, I, in my opinion, the best receiving core in the entire league. They did lose Hayden Hurst. Hopefully they can fill that role. Not hopefully for me. I hope they miss the playoffs, but I still think Joe Burrow is definitely top five quarterback. I think that Zach Taylor is kind of an underrated coach. He's gotten all these wins. Yeah, they have a stacked roster, but he's he's been nothing but awesome for them since they got Joe Burrow, it feels like. So, Joe Burrow at four. I think the Bengals are a team that are going to be a tough out as long as that guy is on the team. It's going to be hard to see how they sign T. Hickens and Jamar Chase and keep all the talent they have on defense. I think they're going to have to bank a lot in the draft and get these young guys that are on cheap deals to be as competitive as they have been once they have these guys, all three of these guys paid. Joe Burrow, it's kind of hard to predict this season. He's kind of got some questions in the air about contract stuff. He had the calf strain in training camp. I don't think he's going to miss any games. I know we had Jamar Chase coming out saying, oh, we don't need you till week five. Don't worry about it. I think he's there week one. I think he's 100% ready to go. I, as far as his contract, I think we're kind of getting close to the point where he might wait till after the season to worry about his contract. It's hard to say. I hope he gets paid soon and early just in case the worst happens. But I think Joe Burrow's contract and his calf won't be a problem for him at all going into this upcoming season. And then at our top three spot, at number three, we have Lamar Jackson. I know people might be calling me a homer for this one, but... I think the Ravens offense made quite a few changes to Lamar Jackson's advantage. They fired their offensive coordinator and hired Todd Munkin from Georgia. I think that their offense will be a much more balanced attack. They're still going to run the ball. They're the Ravens. They're going to, I was talking about it like Pete Carroll last episode. They're going to run the ball. They're going to be tough on the ground, but also through the air, I think it's going to be a little bit more complex of route patterns and stuff like that. There's going to be way more people open, and that also has to do with personnel. Rashad Bateman's been dealing with some injuries and stuff. We'll see how he does this year. They have one of the best tight ends in Mark Andrews, but they also added guys like Odell Beckham Jr., who took a year off for ACL recovery but I think that he will be good. He doesn't have to be the receiver one. He doesn't have to be the most impressive guy on the field. I think that Mark Andrews will still be that guy for the Ravens. They added Zay Flowers as well. He's been one of the most impressive rookies in training camp, as been reported as far as the wide receivers go. And then a sneaky ad that they had was Nelson Aguilar. 
They didn't really have a deep threat at all last year. Their offense was really intermediate. It felt like they never had that many. I think their only deep shot it felt like was that one to Deshaun Jackson that was like 66 yards or something like that. They got a guy like Nelson to take the top off of defenses and be a red zone threat. I think their offense is going to be a lot better this year. I think Lamar is going to take less rushing attempts and have less rushing yards, but I think his passing will be a lot better. And I think that that's what's going to get him up to the number three spot for this year. And then at number two, we have Justin Herbert. I think that Justin Herbert's probably got one of the most talented arms in this league. I think as far as a pocket quarterback goes, he is the golden standard. It's just that he's on the Chargers, and (laughs) it feels like the Chargers are cursed as far as the winning column goes. A lot of missed kicks, a lot of choke leads, even before he got there. We'll see if he can turn that around for this season. They drafted a new receiver in Quinton Johnson, the big fella out of TCU. They got probably the biggest wide receiver core of all time. They got two 6'5 guys. Keenan Allen's pretty tall as well. I think a big thing for them will be health. I think their line will be a lot better this year. Um, They have some guys coming back from injuries. It feels like that whole team was injured last year. Hopefully Keenan Allen and Mike Williams will be ready to go. But I think the most underrated addition in the entire offseason was the Chargers adding Kellen Moore to their team, the offensive coordinator. I think that Lombardi last year had a lot of checkdowns and wasn't using Herbert's talent to his best ability. I think Kellen Moore is going to have a dynamic passing attack that you're always going to be worried about the deep ball. I think they're going to have one of the most explosive offenses in the entire league. I think they could win the division. It's tough because they are with the Chiefs, and it feels like the two most talented quarterbacks are in the same division. Hopefully they have more playoff success going forward. I don't know if people need to like sage the Chargers office to do that or what. Maybe some voodoo is required, but we'll see. Justin Herbert, top two for sure after this year, in my opinion. And then number one, I think if this guy went like oh or like I don't know five and twelve next year, I still think he would be considered the best quarterback, multi-time MVP, multi-time Super Bowl winner, multi-time Super Bowl MVP winner. It's Patrick Mahomes, of course. That was pretty anticlimactic for a number one, but there's just no reason to not have him at one at this point in his career. I think the Chiefs aren't going to stop until Kelsey is ready to retire, which doesn't feel like anytime soon, or Andy Reid. They got the best offensive coach in football. They got the best tight end. Their receivers, it feels like at this point, it's kind of plug and play. I mean, Sky Moore is kind of their rookie that they had that's kind of the Feels like it's going to be the wide receiver one. They got other young guys in camp competing. Kadarius Tony is his health going to be there this year? I don't think that really even matters. I think that just whatever receivers Mahomes got, you can wheel anyone out there as long as they got Kelsey and Reed and their line is at least semi-decent, which I feel like they lost Orlando Brown but added the Jaguars guy. I think their line will be okay. I think their defense will be even better. So given Patrick Mahomes, better field position, more scores, more touchdowns, it's just hard to have him anywhere else. Where else would you put him? So Patrick Mahomes won for the 2023-24 season to wrap up our list. And that will do it for episode two of Mall Might Lie. 
Thank you guys for tuning in. If you have a question to submit, I know we did not get around to it this week. It was a little bit longer of an episode. Please submit them at ballmightlie at gmail.com. Download, share these podcasts. Follow us on social media. Do all that good shit. Appreciate you guys listening. See you in the next one. Peace.